Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A glorious Father, we give you thanks and praise for what you have revealed to us in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us. Teach us the way of your statutes, that we might be able to keep it and persevere until the end. Give us all understanding that we might be able to keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in in the path of your commandments. Help us to be able to delight in it. Help us to incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to be able to find selfish gain. We realize, Lord, that this is not an easy task if we're left to our own devices. We pray that you would help us to do these things through the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jude 8 to verse 16. Yet in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Jude continues to explain in the letter to those who are called beloved and kept the errors in which have, that have crept into the church unnoticed. These errors of these false teachers. In the, in the previous passages, he's used illustrations from the Old Testament to show of their sin and their shame and the end of those false teachers. Jude, in such a short amount of time, has exposed them of their errors. And in today's verse, Jude continues to point out their faults, their flaws, and their false teaching. He uses an example from the past and then specifically calls out the sins 
of the false teachers. You might say at this point, Jude has been laying down his case. He opens in verse 4 by explaining that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master, Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has made his argument, this is what the false teachers have done, and this is what their teaching is doing. And then he has spelled out, unpacking this in more thought, and now he comes and brings it back. You might say if this was a courtroom, Jude opens with the opening statement and today we find the closing arguments and the closing statement before he goes back to sit behind his desk. He begins with quite an interesting thing in verse 14. That is Enoch's prophecy. Now we start with a problem. Now this problem is... It just labeled that way. We're going to call it that way. But he explains by saying that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Then he shares a quote. There, There seems to be somewhat of a problem when we've seen other situations in the past. We're able to be able to go back to the Bible to be able to find out in which that that time that Jude is talking about. We are able to go back to be able to discover what the way of Cain is, the error of Balaam. We're able to go back to be able to see what happened in Korah's rebellion. We're able to go back to Genesis 6 to be able to see what happens. We're able to go back with all of these times, but here he refers to Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And if you go back to Genesis, you will find chapter 5, a man named Enoch, who is the seventh from Adam. But, the quote in which you find in Jude is not mentioned in Genesis chapter 5 or anywhere else in the Bible besides Jude, verses 14 and 16. That this quote is actually found in the book of Enoch which is written between the intertestimonial period. So before Matthew begins writing his gospel and between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would find that this is when this period of time where this book is written. But here, Jude quotes this, and it appears that he is treating it as he has with other portions of Scripture. Now bear with me, because... There are actually many problems that can arise from this. and We'll have to work through them step by step to be able to understand how we can understand that this, in fact, is not really a problem. The first that we need to understand is that did Enoch write the book of Enoch? The simple answer is no. Do we know that the book of Enoch is written between the, the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew? And the book of Enoch is known as a pseudographical book, which means that the author takes on a name of another person and writes pretending to be that person, you might say, who is more famous. Say, if I was to say I'm going to start writing novels, well, my novels aren't going to sell that well. My name is not that popular. So maybe if I was to use a different name, 
people might then go and buy my book. That's kind of the idea. So if Enoch is not written by Enoch, why then does Jude say it is the seventh from Adam? Now some have suggested that Jude had no idea, and he assumed that the book of Enoch was written by Enoch, the original. But clearly they have not read Jude. Enoch was not around for Moses. But Jude had read the book of Enoch was not around before Moses had written his book, but Jude had referred to the story of the assumption of Moses in verse 9, which is also contained in near these similar writings. Another option is that Jude is using the number 7 in more of a, prof- a, pro- uh, a poetic manner. The 7 speaks of not just seventh, but it is uh, the number of completeness. But some have suggested that Enoch did prophesy this portion of the book of Enoch, and it was handed down through oral tradition, and then later down down the road, the pseudo-Enoch then records the original Enoch's words. So Moses lived after Abraham. And we see that Moses was able to record all the events of what happened to Abraham in Genesis. Quite an accurate account. It is an accurate account of what had happened to um, Abraham. So it is quite possible that this were, these were the original words of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and they're passed down and then finally recorded in the book of Enoch, in that intertestimonial period. But we need to understand that when we come to aspects of and questions like this, that often we're asking questions that the original author, Jude in this case, was not trying to answer. It was not trying to answer this question, so it is hard for us to then be able to to um, find out an answer that is to a question that has not been asked at the original time. We always need to then be cautious in how we proceed. The second step we need to say is that, that here we find Jude quoting a portion from the book of Enoch. So whether, however it got to the book of Enoch, you can have that, that first step that we looked at. I tend to believe it's that third example that it was through oral tradition recorded in that intertestimonial period. But if you then find, why is then Jude quoting this scripture, uh, quoting this portion from the book of Enoch? Does that then mean Jude thought the book of Enoch was a part of the Bible? Jude actually used the word prophesied there that, uh, that uh, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, which is used to be able to, people use that to be able to quote Scripture. But it is also used of those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit speaking truth. 
Now, this does not mean everything they uttered is written down. And it does not mean that everything they say is then the word of God. Even we have references in the Bible of additional letters. The letter that goes to the Laodiceans in Colossians, Paul's letters to the Corinthians. We know probably there's at least four letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. We're only given two. So if we were to find Third uh, Corinthians, then does that make it Scripture? Well, we would say no. The scripture is what has been handed down. Our Jude then quotes this. Just because he quotes a portion of this book of Enoch does then not mean that the whole book is then a part of Scripture. Now, this was an issue. Some in the early church believed because Jude quoted this book, it then must be canonical. That means it's included in the Bible. But then others said because Jude quoted this book, Jude was then not canonical. However, no religious groups believed that the book of Enoch was a part of their scriptures. Christians, Jews, even Roman Catholics who do add extra books to the Bible, which we call that are called the Apographa, they don't even include the book of Enoch in their additional books. We also need to note that other times people will quote from non-scriptural sources. Paul does this in Acts chapter 7. In Titus chapter 1 when he says the saying is true about the Cretans. So just because he quotes a portion of this book does not mean that the whole book is then Scripture. But then you might be able to say, well, the portion that he quotes because Jude quotes it and puts it in Scripture. That portion is Scripture because Jude quotes it and puts it in Scripture. Now, some have said that the false teachers would have commonly maybe used and quoted the book of Enoch in their arguments, in their defense. And Jude uses this in argumentative uh, response to be able to disprove their teaching by using their own sources against them. You can study this more in depth if you would like. I'd recommend the commentary by Thomas Schreiner. I think is the best commentary on the book of Jude. All of this is to say that we can get sucked into details with questions like this that are we find ourselves with a few words in verse 14. But Jude does not spend a lot of time on how and why and why he quotes it, what portions of... He doesn't ask those questions. But instead he focuses on what eventually will happen to the false teachers. But we also need to then understand that these references are found throughout all of Scripture, not just in this two verses in Jude where he quotes the book of Enoch. So what does Jude specifically want the church, those who are called, beloved, and kept, to be able to know in these few verses? The first thing he wants them to know is that Jesus is coming. Jude reminds his readers, those who are called, beloved, and kept, 
that those false teachers who are working their way through the church, perverting the grace of God into sensuality, denying the Lord and their Master Jesus Christ, And he says, as much as they seek to be able to deny him as Lord and Master, doesn't then make that statement true. Just because you teach false teaching doesn't then mean it becomes true teaching. It always is false. Jesus is the Lord and he is the Master. And we are told that he is coming. This reference of bringing the 10,000 holy ones can be found in Deuteronomy 33. When Moses is blessing Israel and speaking of how God had delivered the Israelites from the house of slavery out of Egypt, Zechariah then picks up on this and connects it to Deuteronomy chapter 33. To the last day when the Lord will come with His Holy One. Zechariah chapter 14. And Jude is pointing out that although it seems like the wicked false teachers are prospering, They're winning, it seems like. There will be a day when the Lord returns and then their false teaching is revealed. They will know that He is Master and He is Lord. He will come. And everyone will cry out that He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And no amount of false teaching can alter that truth. But the second thing that Jude wants us to be able to know from this quote that he uses is that Jesus is coming to execute judgment and to convict. Jude makes it clear that not only Jesus is coming, but He is coming for a purpose. And that purpose is to execute judgment and convict the ungodly. And Judas highlighted this throughout the whole letter to be able to show how they have rejected God and the effects of all those people who have rejected God. The great punishment which is coming, that doom of utter darkness which they will be cast out forever. Those who have rejected God, rebelled against God, refused God's holy order, order have all perished. They have all faced judgment. And Jude's point is that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And these false teachers will get what is coming to them. They are leading people astray, perverting the grace of God into licentiousness. There is a great deal of difference what we find in verses 14 and 15 to the end of the chapter in chapter, verses 24 and 25. One God is coming to execute judgment for those who have committed such an ungodly deeds. We'll find out what happens to those who are called, beloved, and kept. Now to Him who is able to keep from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. The Christ is coming, and there's two things that Christ will come. He will, cry, he will come to execute judgment, 
and convict those who are ungodly? Or he will present you blameless in the presence of his Father with great joy. The both are kept by Jesus, but kept for two different outcomes. Vessels for honor, vessels for dishonor. The third thing that Jude wants to point out by quoting this uh, from the book of Enoch is Jesus is coming to convict the ungodly. Jude loves this word to be able to describe the false teachers. They are ungodly. Just notice in these few verses how many times he says this. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and un- of ungodliness. They have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. They are those who have not treated God with reverence and awe. They have twisted His grace They have denied His power. And Jude mentions how they have done two things. Their deeds were done in an ungodly way. And how they have spoken against Him. Again, he is writing this to the church. Those who claim to be Christians. Called to live as godly men and godly women. And yet, how does Jude explain them? They are ungodly. This is Paul's point as he speaks to Timothy. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that a part of false teaching is not just that you teach about Christ and believing in Christ. There's that as we believe in Christ, we believe in what Christ has said and what He has taught us and what He has commanded us. That the teaching of Christ, not, it leads to godliness. Not perfection, but godliness. Paul points out that it's a different doctrine. Not just the sound words of Christ, but also the teaching that accords with godliness. But then finally, Jude finishes in verse 16 with a summary of what these false teachers are known for. Again, the church does not know. Maybe as they're reading this letter, they might be able to think, well, this maybe sounds like this person, but up to this point, they've crept in unnoticed. And Jude finishes with these charges against the false teachers. He spells out their sin in more detail. Who are these false teachers? Like in verse 1, he tells of those who are called beloved and kept. We know exactly who this letter is written to, those who are called beloved and kept. We do not know exactly which church it's written to at that specific time. And so too, we know about these false teachers. 
We do not get their names as we do in some of Paul's accounts. But we know exactly these false teachers. The ones who is written, he says, that are called beloved and kept. However, these false teachers, these, these people as he's been explaining them in these, this opening section of Jude, he first calls them grumblers. He explains that they are grumblers. Now this is interesting. He started with this sin. We often don't necessarily think of this as a serious sin. However, Jude, when he thinks of these false teachers, the first one that he comes as he's writing it out, is that, that they are grumblers. This is where he started in verse 5. He speaks of the sin of the people of the wilderness in the people of Israel in the wilderness. Your sin was unbelief. But how did that unbelief present itself in the fruit on the vine? That is, they grumbled against God. Throughout the passage found in Numbers chapter 14, we're told it is because of their grumbling that they will die in the wilderness time and time again. You could say that there's two main things that kindle the anger of the Lord in the book of Numbers. That is, their grumbling against the Lord and rejecting the authority of the men whom God had appointed. Now, we often do not think of these as large sins. However, it is the grumbling that is the cause of the wilderness wandering and the death of those who did not trust God to be able to deliver their enemies in the promised land. And we understand that it, it stems from this unbelief within their hearts, but it presents itself through this grumbling. Now, if we're called to be able to worship God, and this is our chief end, and to be able to enjoy Him forever, then grumbling is the exact opposite of that. This is a challenge for all of us. I think parents know this verse all too well as we quote it to our children. But how often do we quote it to ourselves? Where Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The first charge is they're grumblers. The second is they're malcontents. They're not only grumbling, but they're also malcontents. Which I think is best translated false fault finders. They're quick to point out the sins of others. Now this is exactly one of the devices that Satan uses. He is called the accuser of the brothers. The Pharisees are accused of being like their father Satan, that they are liars. The false teachers like Satan, that they are accusers. We'll look at more of this passage in detail in the coming weeks. But we hear of Satan as he stands waiting to accuse Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. And the false teachers are teaching errors, but they're the ones correcting the faults of others. This is one common method I've seen in those who are confronted with sinful actions. 
that they're very quick to be able to point out your sins with no seeking to be able to understand their own. Now, I'm not denying that the person confronting them is a sinner, but often what is pointed out is, I don't like your tone. Well, okay, sorry about my tone, but what about the truth of what I'm saying? I don't like your timing. Okay, what about the truth of what I'm saying? And the list goes on, and they're quick to be able to point out other people's faults and flaws, but never inwardly look into their own hearts to be able to see, is there actual sin in my heart? But what they're doing is they're seeking to be able to do it to be able to validate their own sins so they don't actually look internally. The third thing that Jude accuses them on is their sin followers. And in verse 8, he explained that they're following their own dreams. And what we find out is they're not just following their made-up dreams, their made-up dreams are made up of sinful desires. This is a rich comment based on the previous statement which Jude had made about them. Here they are pointing out errors and sins of others while they're following their own wicked hearts. These sinful desires are the same which Jude has referred to in verse 7, speaking of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is exactly what Paul said, happen to those who do not glorify and honor God as God in Romans chapter 1. He said, therefore, God gave them up to lust, desires, the same word Jude is using here, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We often think about Romans chapter 1 as those of outside the covenant community. But here Jude is saying that here these people are in the covenant community. They're in the church. Those who are ungenerous. And this could include not just those who are outside the church, but those who are professing to be inside the church, but are truly not saved. The fourth thing that he says is they are boasters. That they are loudmouth boasters. I like the King James translation. They speaketh great swelling words. Peter, speaking of the same false teachers, said, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. That in their boasting, it's not, it's not merely just one thing to be able to boast, to be able to know what you're talking about and speak about that proudly. Here they're boasting, and their boasting is filled with folly and foolishness. And Paul, Peter points out that merely they're not just boasting about their own actions. What they're doing in their boasting, they're leading people astray. They're dragging people into sin. We must be cautious of who we let teach. Not only because we value the Word, but we also value what happens when we teach the Word. 
as Paul was saying, don't let anyone teach not just the, the words of Christ, but also that their actions need to lead to godliness. If you depart from this, then what you end up in is false teaching. We boast only in Christ and His Word, the truth. We trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. On a side note, this is why it's very important. Not just about who is a pastor, but anyone who does any form of teaching. Especially children. Jesus gave a great warning. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Teaching is vital. Teaching God's Word is vital, but also teaching how we are to follow Christ is vital. And here these false teachers are leading people astray. And if we take this verse, not just speaking of little ones, but those who are young in the faith, are cautious we need to be to be able to point people to the Word and what the Word says. The last charge that Jude mentions of these false teachers is their favoritism. Jude points out the sin of partiality that's held by these false teachers. The New King James Version and the New American Standard Bible translate it this way. They are flattering people. The actual Greek is more woodenly translating Marveling to the face. It comes from a Hebrew idiom of lifting up the face. It was actually used throughout the Old Testament. But it's not just merely that you're showing favoritism to one, elevating one. What it actually often is used of is you're favoring one person at the expense of another. You're favoring one person at the expense of another. Your favoritism hurts someone else, not just by gaining something to that person. And usually this is used within the law of speaking of great injustices. You give someone a bribe to help your case. You're giving someone a bribe, but what you're actually doing is you're hurting injustice of someone else. You're bringing someone else. Someone else does not see justice. You're averting the justice system. Now we don't know the extent of what the particulars are in this case of what this sin would have looked like. Did they receive bribes? To be able to have positions of power? Did they show favoritism to a certain group of people? As Paul speaks about in Galatians chapter 2. Did they use resources in church intended for a widow and an orphan and be able to take it to be able to help their own needs or their friends? We're not told specifically. But we are told that they get some form of personal gain from it. 
that what they're doing is they're using their position of authority to be able to gain more power, money, or influence. But remember how Jude introduced himself right at the very beginning. I said it was a very important word and very important how he introduced himself. In contrast to these false teachers who want to build themselves up, Jude says that he is a servant of Christ. Jude has not held back any punches. He has shown us the errors of these false teachers as they have crept into the church. He has surely shown the dangers of these teaching that they have gone unnoticed. He has shown us the dangers as they have led people astray. The effects of denying Jesus as Lord and Master, perverting the grace of God. In the end, these false teachers have destruction and judgment. A great warning for us to be alert and aware of the teaching that we hear and allow in this church. And we pray that if this type of false teaching were to ever creep into this church, we would, it would not be unnoticed. That we would be able to stand firm in the faith in which has been handed and delivered to all the saints. That we would be able to contend. But also I think there's a great joy of hope that we can find. Paul speaks about those members in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkens, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here Judas just spelled out that case, here is what they are. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism. But Paul does not stop there. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We often think of those people out there needing Jesus, but we don't often think about these people in here needing Jesus. And some of us have amazing testimonies where we can see the work of God and we can say, yes, that's who I was. And the great message of the Gospel is that there's no point that is too late until that last moment of utter darkness. There's always time to repent and turn. Always time to be able to say, that was me. And Jude, I think, is writing to those who are called, beloved, and kept, keeping them to be able to tell them, but also warning them that it's teaching, but also these false teachers hearing this message, hopefully it's saying, that was me one day. I was a grumbler. I was malcontent. I was following my own sinful desire. I was a loudmouth boaster showing favoritism to gain advantage. But that was me, not now. What a great message of hope that we find for those who are called. Beloved and kept. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. 
O gracious and most merciful Father, we give You thanks and praise. For even such a difficult passage like this, we see of the hope of Christ returning to be able to judge those who live that ungodly life. Lord, those charges brought against those false teachers. But also, Lord, we realize the hope of the Gospel. Lord, the hope of the Gospel is that sinners are saved through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we pray that whatever our lives might have been, Lord, that You would help us to walk in a way of worthy of Your calling. Help us to put our faith and our trust in Christ alone that He would be able to present us blameless in the presence of His glory with great joy. Our Lord, our Father in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.